remember your first carnival? I remember mine. The fair came to our town every summer. We kids would eagerly anticipate the day the tents were thrown up, the rides appeared, the smell of fried dough filled the air. We'd stand in line. We'd go on the flying chairs and dare each other to try the rickety attempt at a roller coaster. We'd eat ourselves sick. And we'd play games. The bottle toss. Throw the ring around the neck of the bottle. Those guns that squirted into the mouths of clowns to make ships move faster. The fastest ship won the prize. There were so many of them. I remember coveting a huge stuffed lion, which for some reason was green. I think I spent my entire allowance trying to pass a wand through a maze-like contraption without touching the edges. I failed. Miserably. And I likely wasn't the only one. You see, here's one thing most kids, even many adults, never suspect. The carnival is the first con we ever experience. Many of us suspect the odds are stacked against us, but we don't want to believe the games are rigged so as to be unwinnable. That green lion? Unobtainable, at least unless the game operator wants someone to have it. It's a fantasy world in every sense. We come to escape from ourselves, but what we don't realize is that even the fantasy, the dream, is illusory. I'm Maria Konnikova, and this is The Grift, stories about con artists and the lives they ruin. Today, a carnival worker who went on to become a different type of con artist, one that can do a lot more damage in our world. Peter Fenton is a master at selling us the stories we want most to believe. Peter grew up in Mount Clemens, Michigan, a sleepy little town an hour outside of Detroit. Mount Clemens had its heyday in the 1920s and 30s when it was known as Spa City. Someone had drilled for oil and instead struck mineral deposits that were supposedly therapeutic. Bathhouses were built, tourists flocked, casinos and hotels were established. But by the time I came around, they were all gone. But the sense of tawdriness was still in the air. It was prosperity, but with the smell of rotten eggs. It was 1966. Peter's family was, in a way, the personification of Mount Clemens' gilded miasma. His grandparents had owned a big hotel back when the town was booming, and they'd made a name for themselves. Peter's grandfather as a businessman, and his grandmother as something of a socialite. They lived in a beautiful mansion on a hill, and were important people in Mount Clemens. But Peter's father was a different story. He was dissipated and lazy, couldn't hold down a job, and a lot of that stemmed from the fact that he drank. I was in one of the types of alcoholic families, I guess they fall into different patterns, where there was a complete and utter denial that something was going on. My mother's position, my father's position is that this is a great family, we're doing well, and your perception of what's going on with the uh, drunkenness and your father falling asleep on the couch or passing out and all that sort of thing is not happening. 
Despite his difficult home life, Peter was a good kid. At 15 years old, he was shy, not exactly popular, but he got good grades, wrote poetry in his spare time. He was also a math whiz. And that is what first caught the attention of a fellow student. We'll call him Jackie. Jackie was also good at math, but in every other way he seemed like Peter's exact opposite. Peter was small and quiet. Jackie had swagger. Jackie did not seem his age. First of all, he was mature beyond his years, but he was also taller. He he might have been six feet tall even at the time. He had sort of a slicked back hair, dressed well. He was supposed to be pretty exciting. He drove his own car, which is a Corvair, even though he was only 15 years old because his brother had gotten him a uh, fake driver's license from Arkansas. At the time, they were only paper, so easy to duplicate. Adding to his aura of mystery and danger, Jackie came from a family of traveling carnival workers. There was just kind of an air about him that, you know, this is the glamorous guy who works on these carnivals and trains elephants and all that sort of thing. So, and I was a shy kid. So I thought, wow, it's really good that this guy's paying attention to me and maybe some of his glamour will rub off. Jackie's was exactly the sort of tawdry glamour that Peter found so familiar and attractive and repulsive all at once. Peter didn't know it yet, but Jackie would shape the course of his life. So I went down with him to the basement cafeteria, and he got to talking about what he did and that he wanted me to be a part of it. And one of the enticements was he gave me a $20 bill. He said that was his business card. Jackie was planning to start a casino in his parents' basement, and he wanted someone with solid math skills to work with him. They'd invite their classmates to the games, and Jackie and Peter would split the profits 50-50. Peter knew that Jackie had a shady reputation, so he looked at the offer with some suspicion. And sensing this, Jackie somehow knew exactly what to say. You're either an ulcer getter or an ulcer giver. And he said, which one do you want? And of course I said, I want to be an ulcer giver. I don't want to, I've been getting the ulcer, you know, all the last 10 years of growing up in my house. I want to be the ulcer giver. And with that, Peter was in. As Jackie got up to leave, he asked for his $20 back. He was off to another meeting, and he needed his business card. And that was the first time I realized that our relationship was going to be a a mixed one. But never mind that. Or the fact that Jackie probably chose Peter because his good boy image would lend the venture an air of legitimacy. None of that put Peter off because Jackie was an ulcer giver. And he'd show Peter how to become an ulcer giver, too, by teaching him how to rig card and dice games. They practiced at Jackie's house. His house was surrounded by carny paraphernalia, rides. His father also was a ride manufacturer. This was in the winter, so there were rides askew in the half buried under the snow and clown heads popping up here and there. So it was kind of a surreal picture. Peter's initiation into the world of crooked games happened in Jackie's basement. A surreal sort of 
junior Hugh Hefner bachelor pad. He had a full-size slate, pool table, a couple of pinball machines, records, some decanters that looked like they were filled with colored water, but it actually wound up being colored vodka so that his mother wouldn't suspect anything. When you opened up the pinball machines, they didn't function, and then it was because they were turned off and they were filled up with what were at that time called girly magazines, names like Gent and Wow. It was just something I had never experienced before in my life. Jackie and Peter became quite literally partners in crime, and the bachelor pad became an escape from all the anger and frustration Peter felt at home. So that was just by happenstance. I ran into somebody who gave me uh, psychologically the opportunity to kind of address issues that I was dealing with. Anyway, that's how I see it in retrospect. (laughs) (laughs) Who knows? Maybe I was just a jerk. Peter never really felt guilty about putting one over on his classmates. After all, these were the popular kids who had, at worst, picked on Peter and at best ignored him. In fact, Peter found that he rather enjoyed conning his classmates. It wasn't just about the money. He liked the feeling of winning, that rush of power, in the same way that he liked getting good grades. Jackie and Peter continued running casino nights throughout that winter, but that was never the main goal. The real purpose was to get Peter ready for the spring, carnival season. Jackie said his family had to go on the road. Did Peter want to join them on weekends to work the carnival circuit? By now, Peter had gotten to know Jackie's family. And math skills weren't the only thing the boys had in common. Jackie also had awful parents. Both of his parents were old-time carnies. His mother was very uh, acerbic. She looked very much like on The Sopranos, the mother of Tony Soprano. I don't know if you recall her. I do indeed. (laughs) Babies are like animals. They're no different than dogs. Somebody has to teach them right from wrong. But I was your mother. I... Who else was going to do it? But when I saw the show, I was just shocked because they were both in appearance and manner very similar. She really had an acid tongue. And then the father was, he gave you the feeling that he had seen and done everything and nothing that you could present to him would surprise him. But Peter liked the idea of working the carnival with his friend Jackie. He'd have a job, making $25 a day, which was quite respectable for the time. And more importantly, he would be out of the house every weekend, away from his own miserable family. So he went. He soon discovered that the carnival that Jackie's family ran was what's known as a racket show. The reason it's called a racket show is that the whole purpose of it was the games. The rides, the food, everything else was just kind of uh, eye candy, a thing to attract people to it. Every last carnival game was rigged, from the very simplest low-stakes games to the high-stakes games, the ones that involved actual gambling and brought in real money. As a newbie, Peter started off working what were called hanky-pank games. The hanky-pank was a very, very simple game, mostly played to children. It was something like plastic ducks going around and around in a pool of water. 
and a mother will lift her uh, toddler up and the toddler will pick a duck and you look at the bottom and it says number 25 and then you say, oh, 25, you win a little plastic toy. The Carnies called those slum toys because they're cheap and slummy. They'd also have large plush toys on display, but the hanky-pank games were rigged so that nobody ever won those. They were just there to entice carnival goers. The Carnies called those prizes spoofers. Let's say the spoofer, the large plush giraffe, you had to get number 18 on the bottom of your duck in order to win that. Well, the number 18 duck we kept under the counter so that they couldn't win that because that would ruin the uh, profit margin also. But you kept it on the premises in case the police came around so that you could dump it back into the duck pond when they weren't looking. The hanky-pank games were cheap, easy to run, and the way they were rigged was so simple it required no thought at all on the part of the carnival worker. And that's why Peter hated running the hanky-pank games. And I felt a kind of a resentment at doing so because I uh, had been equal partners with Jackie up to this point, and now it was just this guy working on the hanky-pank games while he was going about his business running all of the games. To make matters worse, Peter was given terrible living conditions. In the early spring, he began sleeping in the trailer with the duck pond game. At first, he stayed there only when he traveled with the carnival. But he kept sleeping there, even during the week back at Mount Clemens, because he didn't want to go home to his parents' house. Jackie seemed to take pity on his friend. He allowed Peter to move up to running the next level of carnival game, the alibi joint. The alibi joints were ostensibly games of skill. In other words, it's like throwing a softball, knocking a stuffed cat off a shelf. Another one was the set up Coke. A glass Coca-Cola bottle was set leaning on a cradle at a 45-degree angle. The player used a steel barbecue fork to try to set the bottle straight in the cradle without tipping it over. Actually, there was no skill involved. I mean, no skill. You couldn't get skilled enough to win these if you wanted to because they were all fixed. For example, in the set up Coke, the glass bottles they used were irregular. The bottom of the bottle would be thicker and heavier on one side. So if Peter set the bottle in the cradle with the heavier side facing the player, when the player nudged it, it was more likely to stay up and the player would win. If he placed the bottle so it faced the opposite direction, when the player nudged it, there was no way that bottle was going to stand up. So that allowed me or any other alibi agent to control when the person would win and when they wouldn't win. All of the alibi joints were based on that principle. The games were rigged so the carny could control when you won and when you lost. But because the game seemed to be based on skill, you'd think that you were the one in control. You're the one nudging, throwing, balancing. You're calling the shots. And at first, the carny often lets you win. And then he ups the stakes. How about double or nothing? It's classic grift. Rope you in and then catch you in a false reality that you think is real. And if this time you win, you get the $2 back and then you get the prize. So they try that. 
And then when they don't, you give them the excuse, the alibi. Well, you're pushing it a little too softly or, you know, or, or you're a little too hard. Just relax. Take it easy. You always have an excuse for it. And so you get them going that way. And if you're lucky, you can get them to actually be gambling or the appearance of gambling where you get them playing for $8 a throw or 10 or 12 And so on, increasing the bets incrementally. Then, Peter had to figure out when his mark was really getting into the game. That's when he'd start making up rules to up the ante. Okay, we played five times now, and according to the rules, we now have to triple the price. So you're paying for $8 a game, and now it has to be 24. I didn't write the rules. The only time I get paid is when somebody wins, and I hope you win because I get tips from happy customers. Inevitably, after losing too many times, the mark would get frustrated and angry. And for a scrawny teenager like Peter, that could be dangerous. In the case of the Coke bottle game, you're handing them a barbecue fork (laughs) and taking their money. So it can get quite tense on your part because you never know what's going to happen. So this was the hard part. Peter had to get his mark to calm down and get out of there. The idea was to leave the player with just enough money to buy gas and drive home. You'll say, listen, there's a consolation prize here. Take this. Not one teddy bear. You spent $85. Here's two teddy bears. Just go. Just tell them people you want it here. Okay, do me a favor. I'm doing you a favor. You do me a favor. Just walk around the midway before you leave. Show people you got these two teddy bears and, and tell them where it was. That, what happened right there, is what Peter loved about running the alibi joints. Taking a mark for all he had, and then convincing him that Peter was the one doing him a favor. Again, Peter didn't feel sorry for his marks. Usually they were small-town macho types. They obviously had been drinking. You can smell it. They're drinking Coke and uh, gin or what have you. And they got an attitude toward you. Yeah, I'm going to... And there's a lot of swearing and vulgarity and a lot of uh, tough talk and tough acting. Kind of like his father. Running the alibi games was like payback. And it was just my little secret knowing, you think you're so bad, you don't know what's happening to you. I've got you under control and you're going to walk away steaming and you won't even know what happened to you. Coming up after the break, Peter moves up to the top reaches of the carnival hierarchy and realizes where his real skills lie. So back to the carnival, where Peter Fenton is working the alibi joints. His friend Jackie was still the one running the show, so they weren't quite on equal footing, but they were closer to it. Peter was happy, and as twisted as it was, he found that running these con games was not just psychologically fulfilling, but also creatively inspiring. You see, Peter was a literary sort. When I started on the carnival, I always enjoyed writing. And at the time, I wrote poetry, which sounds kind of incongruous, but I, I put together a collection of poetry, carnival-related poems, and I won something called the Miles Modern Poetry Award. So things were looking up for Peter. He was out of his parents' house and in with his carny friends. He was getting good grades running his cons. And eventually, things got even better. Jackie promoted him to the flat store games. 
This was the pinnacle of the carnival game scene. It was a game with the highest stakes that required the most finesse on the part of the carny. And Peter was the youngest operator, except for Jackie, to have the chance to do it. That's how good he was. The type of persona that you had to adopt on this game was completely different than you would on an alibi store where you had to be kind of in blue jeans and a t-shirt and kind of rough and ready to fight. On the flat store, you had to present yourself as genteel, refined, or as refined as one could be at a carnival. That meant sharkskin suits, skinny ties, sunglasses even at night. Hair all slicked back and pale white as if you never saw the light of day. They look sort of like the people who might be hanging in the shadows of Times Square in the early 60s. Again, it was that faded glamour, that prosperity with the smell of rotten eggs. The flat store game is essentially a gambling endeavor. It could be anything from a wheel of fortune type of setup to marbles that have to roll into differently numbered holes where your aim is to amass a certain total. The main thing is that you are always this close to winning, and you just need to pay a little bit more to see the gains. So you're just a spin away, or a few marbles short of your required total. And if you pay two, four, eight dollars more, you'll be able to win so much. The amounts go up exponentially in what is essentially a crooked gamble. Because something always goes wrong. Your marble rolls into the hole that says 29, And 29, as the sheet of rules says, resets your total. The operator's really so sorry. It's just bad luck. The money adds up, and it adds up quickly. You are hot. You are hooked. You want to win. Because the prizes aren't stuffed animals. They're things like transistor radios and small black and white television sets. And the gambling spirit takes hold. Of course, nobody ever won the big prizes. As was his habit, Peter worked at it and excelled, although he never did get as good as Jackie. Peter stayed on with the carnival for about three years, through the end of high school and up until college. And then, just like that, he got out. He no longer needed the carnival in order to escape from his parents' house. Now, at 18, he could finally leave home for good. Well, I was going off to school, and also it probably was because Jackie was getting out of it himself, and that was my—I had no interest in working for somebody else in this business, so that was the end of it. Jackie confided to Peter that he wanted out of the carnival business. And he did escape. He went off to business school and eventually became an accountant and professor. In a way— it was his ultimate act of rebellion against his Carney family. So his trajectory was kind of the opposite of mine, and we just had intersected for that brief period of time. Peter's life took a different turn. He made his way through college, finished his degree, got married. But something was missing. He missed the thrill of the con. And so he looked for a way to get that feeling back something that would be a more adult version of the carnival fantasy. A way of crafting alternate worlds and wheeling people into them, almost in spite of themselves. 
had always been a fan of the tabloids. So I talked to my wife and said, maybe they, they might be interested in my carnival experiences. People crave stories, Peter knew. Why not create the ones they want for them? He wrote up a pitch for a story about how carnival games are rigged and sent it to the National Enquirer. Not really expecting to hear anything, and then I got a call from one of the editors, and he said, how would you like to write for us? And I said, what? You know, but maybe because I had a carny background and I had some ability as a writer, they wanted to take me on. Peter was thrilled at the offer. Now, the National Enquirer hardly needs an introduction. You may recognize it as the Technicolor rag occupying the shelf above the candy bars when you wait in line at the grocery store. The National Enquirer is like the print version of a carnival. It's ostensibly news, but really it's an alternate world. The news is rigged, so to speak. And writing for it came naturally to Peter. He wrote about alien abductions, hauntings, the usual tabloid fodder. And just as he did at the carnival, he quickly moved up the ranks. I was basically the chief paranormal reporter, writing about people from outer space and ghost stories and that sort of thing. Chief paranormal reporter isn't an altogether accurate title. There was simply no reporting involved. Every story Peter wrote was completely fabricated. So it was kind of in the carnival spirit, not hurting anybody in this case, but just having a fun at kind of manipulating reality for the purposes of modest personal gain, just sort of a secret little laugh. I'm sitting at home in my pajamas or whatever, writing up the stories. I'm creating this reality. I'm making it up and and it's getting published. And there are some people who, whether you think this is possible or not, who actually believe in this stuff. Peter made up some pretty outlandish stories, like the one about the so-called devil's hoofprints. The headline reads, Experts report scary evidence the devil still walks among us. It was in the middle of winter, just before Christmas, and a kid looked up there hoping to see Santa Claus, and instead there were these impressions of cloven hooves on the roof in the three or four inch snow, which indicated the expert that I talked to that the devil had tried to get down the chimney rather than Santa. Peter would quote actual people in his fake stories. These were other con artists, psychics, so-called paranormal investigators, He'd make up their quotes and read it by them before publication. And since they were also con artists and would get a small stipend plus publicity, they'd say yes. Peter was also good at finding credible sources with dubious beliefs. And I also worked with, uh, I have to be honest, a couple of Harvard professors, one of whom thought there was a, an afterlife. And another one, I think he was uh, into UFOs. But Peter's work is not all just devil's hoofprints and UFOs. That can be dismissed as relatively harmless, or at least not actively harmful to the world. But he also writes pieces like one titled, Nobel Prize winner says most experts are full of hot air. The article quotes Richard Feynman, who indeed won the Nobel Prize in physics in 1965, 
According to Peter, Feynman says not to blindly accept what so-called experts say about things like child-rearing, dating, investing in the stock market. He says the average person has just as much knowledge as these experts and should rely on their common sense. You can read this article either as an argument for critical thinking or as an argument for mistrusting all authority, including real experts who really do know more than you. In many ways, Peter pioneered a lot of what we see today, multiple times a day in our news feeds. The fake story that just feels right, that confirms our biases and fears. It's the ultimate storytelling con, and it goes from carnival to carnage fairly quickly. And even carnivals are not harmless. Just a few years ago, a man lost $2,600 at something called the Kids Carnival. He wanted to win an Xbox for his children. Some have reported losses of over 10000 That's a lot of money for a kids' fair. As for Peter, he's still writing about the paranormal for various online publications. He also volunteers at a group home for the mentally ill. It's a little surreal, he says, and in that way, it reminds him of his old carny friends. And he doesn't judge them either. The Grift is produced by Adelia Rubin, Shoshi Shmulevitz, and Jacob Smith. Our editor is Julia Barton, and our fact checker is Jen Schwartz. Ben Levin composed our music. Special thanks to Mia Lobel, Laura Mayer, and Andy Bowers. 